This is History 2311, Week 9B, New Frontiers. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. Our opening music today is Fly Me to the Moon by Frank Sinatra, and that is not a pun, or at least not just a pun, on the moon landing, although I will talk about the moon landing a little bit today. But Frank Sinatra was famously a friend of President John Kennedy, or at least in his orbit. So that too makes it an appropriate choice for today. Last year when I was teaching this class, a student raised their hand and asked, why do we spend so much time on Kennedy? He was only president for a few years and did he even really do anything? First of all, this makes me nostalgic for one year ago when we still had class together and a student could raise their hand and ask questions and we could have an interesting conversation about what they asked. I really do miss that. But setting that aside, I thought it was a funny question because I don't really think we do spend much time on Kennedy. If anything, I feel bad that I don't spend more time on him. I know that students often are interested in Kennedy. I personally find Lyndon Johnson much more interesting. And I kind of rushed through Kennedy's short presidency to get to Johnson's. Now, what came out in our conversation in class a year ago, a little more than a year ago, is that the student didn't really mean why does this course spend so much time on Kennedy, but why do people generally devote so much attention to him? And that's an easier question to answer, I think. Kennedy was a very young president, he was charismatic, and of course, he was assassinated in office, which was a huge national trauma, really a generational trauma for the baby boom generation that, that still to this day dominates American political and cultural life. And then the years following his assassination were ones of such turmoil and upheaval for both good and bad, that it really became hard to resist the idea that something had died with Kennedy symbolically, even though I don't actually think his death caused any of the upheavals we're gonna be talking about in the coming lectures. My lecture today is organized around the Kennedy and Johnson presidencies, but it's not really about either man. I wanna use their presidencies to talk about the zenith and the limits of American liberalism. This period, the early 1960s to the mid 1960s, is really the high watermark for a certain kind of liberal politics in the United States. And by liberal, I don't mean leftist, I mean a kind of centrist, Cold War liberalism, which I'm going to try to describe and explain. So this period in the early 1960s is a good point for us to take stock of what that kind of 20th century liberalism was and what it was and was not able to achieve. So as our term has gone along, we have looked from time to time at key elections, at historic elections where a lot was at stake, turning point elections that kind of redrew the electoral map and set up a new political environment. The election of 1896, for example, anticipated 30 years of Republican dominance. 
that was interrupted, but not really changed or challenged by the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. The election of 1932 inaugurated 30 years of democratic dominance, again, that was interrupted, but not meaningfully changed or challenged by Eisenhower's presidency. But the election of 1960 was not one of these turning point elections. It pitted Senator John F. Kennedy against Vice President Richard Nixon. And what is really striking in retrospect, looking back, is how much Kennedy and Nixon had in common politically, how little difference there was between their policies, between the two parties at this moment. I mean, look right here, they basically had the same campaign buttons with the same design and the same slogan on them. I know that doesn't prove anything, but it's a sort of superficial illustration of my point. Despite his red baiting history as the guy who got Alger Hiss, Richard Nixon had kind of grown into being a moderate centrist Republican, very much an Eisenhower Republican. And then the young Senator John Kennedy was a hawkish, very anti-communist liberal. So there wasn't a lot of daylight between them on policy. As often happens when there's not much difference politically between the candidates, the election turned on superficial things like personality and style. And that's where you could see clear differences between the charming, charismatic Kennedy and the kind of dour, insecure Nixon. The election of 1960 famously featured the first television debates, the first televised presidential debates. And Kennedy famously won, in quotation marks, these debates, not so much because of anything he said, but simply because he looked so much better on television. Nixon was kind of pale and looked sweaty under the TV lights, while Kennedy came across as confident and in command. In the end, Kennedy won the election of 1960 by the thinnest of margins, only about 100,000 votes or a tenth of a percent. I think it was the closest election in the 20th century. The bigger point I wanna make about the election of 1960 is that it illustrated what historians call the liberal consensus of mid 20th century America. There wasn't that much difference between Kennedy and Nixon. There wasn't that much distance between the two political parties at this time. If you think of a political spectrum running from left to right, the Red Scare, the anti-communism of the 1950s had really dismantled and discredited the far left. But the New Deal years and the war against fascism and then McCarthyism had also discredited the far right. And so the result was everyone, or at least the great majority of people, was really close to the political center. And you could call that center Cold War liberalism or the liberal consensus. This is a quote from and a, and a photograph of the historian Arthur Schlesinger with President Kennedy. Schlesinger wrote a very influential book in 1949 called The Vital Center. Remember some weeks ago, I said that before the 1940s, Americans really didn't use the left-wing, right-wing spectrum much. They only started to use it in the 1940s and 50s, and they were taught to use it by people like Schlesinger in his book about the vital center. But when Schlesinger laid out the spectrum with fascism on the far right and communism on the far left, it wasn't a neutral description of politics. It was an argument for a certain kind of centrist politics. Looking at the world in 1948, 
1949, right after the Second World War, at the dawn of the Cold War, people like Schlesinger said, right-wing politics are obviously bad, they lead to fascism. Left-wing politics are obviously bad, they lead to communism. The only safe space, the only democratic space is the middle. And I'm sometimes surprised that people today who might hold strong progressive views or strong conservative views for that matter, still accept the left to right spectrum as a description of political reality, because it's not a neutral description. It's an argument in favor of centrism. And Schlesinger and people like him said, strong political ideology of any kind is bad. He said, the hope for the future lies in the political center. I mean, I would argue that centrism is an ideology, but centrists don't see it that way. Anyway, this line of argument made a lot of sense to a lot of Americans in the middle of the 20th century. And it made a lot of sense to John F. Kennedy, who kind of adopted Arthur Schlesinger as a special assistant and in-house historian while he was president. Now, some of you might be thrown by my using the words liberal and centrist sort of interchangeably. The word liberal, liberalism, it often trips people up. It's tricky. One thing you have to remember if you're studying history of a long period is that words change their meaning over time. And few words have meant as many different things as the words liberal or liberalism. Back in the 19th century, liberalism meant almost the opposite of what we think it means today. Liberal comes from the root word liberty, meaning freedom, and classical 19th century liberalism emphasized freedom of the individual especially civil liberties and economic freedom. So the ideal liberal state in the 19th century was a laissez-faire state, one that enforced the rule of law, but otherwise did not interfere in the workings of the free market, free trade, private property. That's, that was, those were the freedoms emphasized by that word liberty in liberalism. But in the 20th century, especially in the New Deal era, the meaning of liberalism, in America at least, shifted. New Deal liberalism, sometimes called social liberalism, embraced the state, or it embraced the idea of a larger, more powerful government that was more active in regulating the economy and society in order to achieve what it perceived as fairness. Now, New Deal liberalism was not socialism. Socialism advocates collective solutions and liberalism, even New Deal liberalism is still very much about individual action. It still endorses private property, private business, markets, but not absolutely free markets. Then by the 1950s and 1960s, the period I'm gonna talk about today, New Deal liberalism was kind of hardened or tempered by World War II and the Cold War and its internationalist impulses kind of came to the fore. Looking ahead just a bit, in the last 40 years, the word liberal was so attacked by people on both the left and the right that, that most American politicians today kind of shun the label. And then in the 1980s and 90s and since, we have the rise of what people call neoliberalism, just to confuse things a little more. And neoliberalism or new liberalism is a kind of contentious term, but it refers to a state in which the government does have power, but it only uses that power to serve the market, to serve capitalist interests. And we'll talk more about that as we get closer to the present. But for now, we're talking about the Cold War liberalism of the 1950s and 60s, which really, I think, 
was a kind of high watermark for liberalism in America. So what was Cold War liberalism? What did the liberals of this era believe in? Well, first of all, they believed in the New Deal or something like it. Both parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, agreed that a modest welfare state was necessary. Mainstream Republicans in this era, people like Nixon, people like Eisenhower, never seriously suggested dismantling Social Security, never questioned that labor unions had the right to collective bargaining. They supported a progressive income tax, as I was talking about last week, and so on. They might argue about details, and the Republicans were a little more concerned about balancing the budget than the Democrats. But there was a pretty firm consensus on both sides in support of a New Deal-style welfare state. The Cold War liberals were also, as the name implies, anti-communists. They were cold warriors, both at home and abroad. Both parties, the vast majority of American people, believed in containment. They believed that the United States was obligated to oppose communism and defend the free world. And finally, they believed in the American government. And this is possibly the biggest difference between Cold War liberals and most Americans today, is that the Cold War liberals had immense faith in the American government and what it could achieve. They believed, they really believed that the American government could provide economic prosperity, international security, and social justice. I mean, these are people who saw their country beat the Depression, defeat Nazi Germany and Japan, harness the atom, split the atom, build freeways and rockets. There seemed to be no end to what the American superpower could achieve. Americans today love their country. They say their country is great, make America great again. But when they say that, they're not talking about the government. Nobody on the left or right says that the government is great. In the 1950s and 60s, there was much more faith that the government could do the things it promised. It could embark on great projects, whether that was beating the Nazis or putting a man on the moon or ending poverty. There were certainly arguments about priorities, about which great projects to take on, but the basic premise that government worked and that government could do these things was accepted in a way it really is not today. In the 1960s, the Kennedy-Johnson years were, as I said, the high watermark of this faith, but they were also kind of its last days. The 1960s, the years in which John F. Kennedy and then Lyndon B. Johnson were president, were the high watermark, as I've said, of this kind of liberal consensus, of this liberal confidence, but they were also, in a lot of ways, its last days. John F. Kennedy was a powerful voice for this confidence, for this American faith. Kennedy was the youngest president since Theodore Roosevelt, and he was kind of Rooseveltian, I mean, Theodore Rooseveltian, in a lot of ways. You'll recall that Teddy Roosevelt was obsessed with the frontier, and Kennedy in the 1960s spoke of a new frontier, by which he meant conquering outer space, technological advances, ever-increasing prosperity, and, of course, defeating the Russians. In 1961, after the Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first human being in space, Kennedy pledged that the United States would go to the moon before the end of the decade. In 1962, he said, we choose to go to the moon. We choose to do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. It kind of sounds like Teddy Roosevelt talking about the strenuous life, but it's also a great example of this Cold War liberal faith that the government can and must do great things. Now, Kennedy's principal agenda, the thing that he probably cared about most, was beating the Soviet Union. 
even more than any of his predecessors, Kennedy viewed the world through the prism of the Cold War. And a lot of his energy went towards finding ways to wage that war that were short of war itself. One of Kennedy's first acts as president was to establish the Peace Corps, which sent young Americans abroad to aid in the economic development of the so-called Third World. The, the term Third World is itself an artifact of the Cold War, the idea being that the democratic capitalist West is the first world, the communist bloc countries are a second world, and then the developing countries of, say, Africa, some parts of South America, and so on, are a third world whose loyalties in the Cold War were kind of up for grabs. One of the most dangerous flashpoints of the Cold War in the early 1960s was the United States dealings with Cuba. In 1959, Fidel Castro led a revolution in Cuba that ousted Fulgencio Batista, who was a kind of right-wing dictator who had ruled there. In the first months of his presidency, Kennedy authorized the CIA to attempt an invasion of Cuba with the help of anti-Castro Cuban exiles in Florida, and also, many people argue, the mafia. Kennedy had a lot of faith, too much faith probably, in the CIA and in covert operations in general. And the 1960s were a kind of golden age, if that's the right word, of covert ops, special operations, spies, and secret weapons. I mean, you even see that in the popular culture of the era, James Bond, Mission Impossible, The Man from UNCLE. And this is a side effect of the Cold War context because the danger of a nuclear showdown with the Soviets was too great. World War III was unthinkable. So the idea always was to use spies and secret agents and black ops instead of outright military action. Anyway, the Cuban invasion that Kennedy authorized, which landed 1,400 anti-communist Cubans at a site called the Bay of Pigs, was a disaster. Virtually all of the anti-Castro Cubans were either killed or captured, and the whole episode humiliated the U.S. government and only served to drive Cuba even closer to the Soviet Union. The most dangerous crisis of the Kennedy administration came in October 1962, when American spy planes discovered that the Soviet Union was installing nuclear missiles in Cuba. And for a few weeks in 1962, it looked very much like the United States might invade Cuba. Many American advisors said that they had no choice but to invade Cuba. It was too threatening to have those weapons there. But a military invasion would almost certainly have provoked some kind of Soviet response, probably in Berlin, and possibly an all-out war. What Kennedy did do is impose a naval blockade around the island of Cuba, and he demanded that the missiles be removed. And what followed was an extremely tense standoff. For 13 days, the world held its breath, really on the brink of all-out war between the nuclear superpowers. Ultimately, the Soviets, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, agreed to withdraw missiles from Cuba. In exchange, Kennedy pledged not to invade Cuba and also secretly, quietly, agreed to withdraw American missiles in Turkey. And so the crisis was averted. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy seemed to have lost some of his taste for Cold War saber-rattling. He called for better relations with the Soviets. Uh, they installed the famous hotline, which allowed direct communication between the White House and the Kremlin. He also told the CIA to stop harassing Castro and so on. In terms of domestic politics, Kennedy was always a little less interested in domestic affairs than in Cold War foreign policy. 
And although he, he could be a very inspiring speaker, despite his soaring rhetoric, his record of actual domestic political achievements is remarkably thin. He came into office with ambitious proposals for improving education, for using government spending to stimulate the economy, and after 1963, for civil rights legislation. But Kennedy got almost none of these things through Congress. The states blocked his education bill, which they saw as a kind of power grab by the federal government. Republicans blocked his spending bills because they wanted to balance the budget. And Southern Democrats blocked his attempts at civil rights legislation. By the fall of 1963, Kennedy had basically given up on getting any of these bills through Congress. He decided to focus on winning re-election in 1964, hoping he could accomplish more in his second term. Of course, Kennedy didn't get that second term. On November 22, 1963, on a trip to Dallas, Texas, to shore up his support with Southern Democrats, Kennedy was assassinated, shot and killed by a former Marine sniper, Lee Harvey Oswald. And so Kennedy's vice president, Lyndon Johnson, was sworn in as the new president. This didn't represent a great change in political direction, but it did represent a change in temperament or style. As with the contrast between Kennedy and Nixon, Kennedy and Johnson were very different, not in politics, but in temperament or style. Kennedy, of course, was rich. He was sophisticated. He was charming. He was not really an intellectual, but he was Harvard educated. He was polished. He was suave. Johnson was a self-described redneck raised in the dirt poor hill country of central Texas. Johnson was crude. He swore a lot. He told dirty jokes. He'd, he was known for doing things like making people keep talking to him while he sat on the toilet with the door open as a, as a kind of power play, a way of rattling them. Johnson had come up during the New Deal. He was first elected to Congress in 1937. And Franklin Roosevelt was his idol. And the New Deal was really Johnson's ticket out of the hill country. As a congressman, Johnson brought electricity and running water to central Texas. And his time as a loyal soldier of the New Deal really impressed him with a powerful faith in government's ability to improve people's lives, that New Deal, Cold War liberal faith. Another difference between Johnson and Kennedy is that if Kennedy was a charismatic speaker, but, but not a great political operator, good on stage, but not so good at backroom politics, Johnson was the reverse. Nobody was better at one-on-one -on -one political persuasion than Lyndon Johnson. He worked ridiculous hours. He was constantly on the phone, talking to people, working Congress, twisting arms, promising and extracting favors. People talked about the Johnson treatment, which is what this photograph is meant to illustrate. Johnson was a big guy, and he liked to get right up in people's faces, cajole them, pressure them, threaten them, joke with them, whatever he had to do. I mean, just look at the body language in this picture of Johnson putting pressure on Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas. Both men are smiling, but this is not a friendly conversation. And as I said last time, Johnson used Kennedy's legacy to get the Civil Rights Act passed. But it was really Johnson's achievement. He used all his powers of persuasion, arm twisting, lobbying Southern senators in a way Kennedy never could have done. Johnson became president in November 1963, which meant he was only president for about a year before he faced re-election in 1964. The Republican Party in 1964 was divided, as it often has been, between its conservative and its more moderate, even liberal factions. 
Richard Nixon, who had been able to unite those two factions in 1960, decided not to run in 64. This opened the door for Barry Goldwater, who was a very conservative senator from Arizona, to win the nomination over Nelson Rockefeller, who was sort of one of the last of the liberal Republicans. And Barry Goldwater was the forerunner of something that we're now very familiar with. He was a new right Reagan conservative, a George W. Bush style conservative. I won't say a Trumpian conservative because Trump is kind of his own thing. But Goldwater was definitely to the right of the liberal consensus and even to the right of the Republican Party or many in the Republican Party. He was an enemy of New Deal social programs. He was a rebel against the liberal consensus. He was also a staunch defender of states' rights. On the issue of desegregation and civil rights, Goldwater always insisted that he was not racist. In fact, he said he believed Black children should be able to go to school with white children, but he said the federal government had no power or no right to force that on the people of, say, Mississippi or Alabama or Arkansas. So whether or not Goldwater really was a segregationist, white segregationists flocked to him. And in that, we see the beginning of the move of the white South from the Democrats to the Republican Party. Where Goldwater seemed most extreme was on the Cold War and the idea of nuclear war. Goldwater said, containment isn't enough. America must roll back communism. He kept saying things like, I'd rather die in an atomic explosion than surrender to communism. And coming just two years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, this kind of talk worried people. You see this campaign button here that says, in your heart, you know he's right. The Democrats made an alternate button in your guts, you know he's nuts. Now, in years to come, it would turn out that Goldwater was ahead of his time. In a lot of ways, he represented the future of the Republican Party. At the Republicans' 1964 convention, the actor turned corporate spokesman Ronald Reagan made his political debut giving the speech that introduced Barry Goldwater. And Goldwater really anticipated where Ronald Reagan was going to take the Republican Party. When Reagan was elected president in 1980, he actually said, Barry Goldwater really won the 1964 election. It just took them 16 years to count the votes. But in 1964, that all lay in the future. At the time, Goldwater seemed extreme to a lot of people because he was outside that liberal consensus I was speaking of. And so Johnson won the 1964 election in a landslide. 1960 was the closest election of the century, and 1964 was the most lopsided election of the century. You can see here the only states the Republicans won were Goldwater's home state of Arizona and then five states in the Deep South. Johnson interpreted his big victory in 1964 as a mandate to do big things. If you combine the liberal faith in American government with Johnson's own drive and huge ego, he, he wanted to be the greatest president in history. And his benchmark for that was Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. He wanted to outdo his hero, Roosevelt. If Roosevelt could accomplish all that he accomplished in the depths of the depression, Johnson asked, what could he accomplish in an age of prosperity and affluence? So Johnson set out a legislative agenda of unparalleled scope. Basically, he promised something for everyone, health care for the old, major federal spending on education for the young, jobs training for the unemployed, parks and wilderness preservation, 
Johnson was the first president since Teddy Roosevelt to really talk about the environment, uh, civil rights and affirmative action for minorities. And on top of all that, he said he was gonna end poverty in America. At first, Johnson called this bouquet of programs the better deal, clear reference to the New Deal. But in May 1964, he changed the name. He dubbed it the Great Society. In the first year or so of his presidency, Johnson passed an astonishing amount of legislation. It really did resemble Roosevelt's first hundred days. The Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act alone were huge historic achievements, but Johnson also created Medicare for the elderly. He passed the major education bill that Kennedy had never been able to get off the ground, and he started major new initiatives for fighting both urban and rural poverty. He also stepped up government protection of the environment, setting aside millions of acres of public land. He passed a new minimum wage legislation, and he reformed the immigration system. He eliminated those racial and racist quotas that had been in place since the 1920s. Now, I should say that Johnson cared a lot more about passing legislation than he cared about the details of implementing it. Typically, he would get a bill through Congress, do his thing, and then move on to the next thing and not really pay attention to whether it worked or not. And a lot of these programs were, to be honest, poorly run and implemented. The urban poverty programs became boondoggles. It was easy for people to siphon off money from the government into pork barrel projects, funds for their home districts, and so on. Johnson would always say, we'll get the bill passed and then we'll worry about the details. But he never seemed to get around to worrying about the details. And when the new right came to power in the 1970s and 80s, the Reagan right and other people in, in Reagan's orbit, when they complained about big government, about wasteful spending and so on, it was usually Johnson's great society programs they were talking about. What Johnson achieved was remarkable, but his ambition helped produce a kind of backlash against liberalism, uh, against government programs, and against the belief that government really can solve all problems. But in 1965, 1966, that still lay in the future because the real thing that destroyed Johnson's presidency and his historical legacy was the war in Vietnam. My discussion of the war in Vietnam is going to be split between this week and next. To set up that discussion, we need to back up in time and talk a little bit about the history of Vietnam. What is now Vietnam used to be part of French Indochina. Another example of European imperialism, the French conquered this territory from the Chinese way back in the 19th century. And as we've discussed, as far back as Versailles, at the end of the First World War, the Vietnamese were pressing for their independence. We talked about Ho Chi Minh being at Versailles in 1919. And we talked about the Vietnamese Declaration of Independence in 1945, where Ho Chi Minh quoted the American Declaration of Independence. Now, back during the Second World War, Franklin Roosevelt was very critical of French colonialism in Indochina. He said the French had badly mismanaged the region and that it ought to move towards independence. But the Cold War reoriented American priorities in foreign affairs. President Truman and President Eisenhower, while neither wanted to get directly involved, did consider it necessary to back the French, to support the French in Indochina in order to stop the spread of communism and also to keep France as a strong ally in the Cold War. 
1954, it was clear that French rule in Indochina was collapsing. The Vietnamese dealt the French a stunning defeat at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. Eisenhower, who was president at the time, famously compared the nations of Asia to a row of dominoes. He said, if one nation falls to communism, it will knock over the next and then the next and then the next like a row of dominoes and all Asia will become communist very quickly. And this became known as the domino theory. When France finally gave up control of Indochina at the peace talks ending the Indochina war, Vietnam was temporarily divided into a Northern zone, which was controlled by Ho Chi Minh's nationalists and a Southern zone ostensibly controlled by the old emperor, but really under control of President Go Dinh Diem. And then the plan was that both halves of the country would hold free elections within two years. But after consolidating power in the South, Diem refused to do so. Now, the Americans thought at first that they could work with Diem because he was Catholic and because he was a staunch anti-communist. But he was also really a violent dictator, and he earned the hatred of his own people through his vicious persecution of the nation's Buddhist majority. Kennedy supported Diem at first. He resisted sending American troops to Vietnam, but he did send money and weapons and advisors. Remember what I said about Kennedy's predilection for covert ops and spies and things like that. He sent a lot of these special ops commandos. And by 1963, there were 16,000 American, quote, advisors in South Vietnam, which is to say special forces of one kind or another. But as the nature of the Diem regime became more and more clear, Kennedy started regretting his support. And in October 1963, Kennedy administration officials secretly told a group of Vietnamese generals that if they were to overthrow Diem, the United States would not interfere. And in November 1963, those generals, possibly aided by CIA operatives, killed Diem and his brothers in a violent coup. As I say, this was November 1963. Just two weeks after the coup, Kennedy himself was dead, and Vietnam was Lyndon Johnson's war. Now, unlike Kennedy, Johnson had really never wanted to be a foreign policy president. He wanted to outdo Roosevelt, but it was the Roosevelt of the New Deal, not Roosevelt the war leader, that he wanted to emulate and outdo. And Johnson was stymied by the war. He was stymied by an enemy who proved impervious to the Johnson treatment. In fact, Johnson often lamented, he said, I wish I could just get in a room with Ho Chi Minh and negotiate with him and cut a deal. He even proposed a kind of New Deal for Vietnam. He said, if North Vietnam would cease and desist, the United States would build them a huge hydroelectric dam on the Mekong River, like the Tennessee Valley Authority, but for Vietnam. So here you see that faith in New Deal style government programs, Johnson trying to translate New Deal liberalism to the jungles and rice paddies of Southeast Asia. But the North Vietnamese did not go for it. They dismissed this bribe and the war went on. Six American presidents expanded US intervention in Vietnam. Franklin Roosevelt retreated from his program for Asian decolonization. Truman and then Eisenhower both backed the French. Kennedy backed Diem and then allowed this coup to happen. And finally, Johnson and then Nixon would both escalate the war. So why is Vietnam thought of as Lyndon Johnson's war? Why is his legacy in particular tarnished by the conflict? 
Part of it is that Johnson drastically increased America's commitment to the war, and he did so in a particularly dangerous way. In August 1964, a U.S. destroyer was patrolling in the Gulf of Tonkin off the coast of North Vietnam, and it either was or was not fired on by North Vietnamese torpedo boats. In 2005, the National Security Agency released secret documents suggesting that the attack never took place. But whatever the truth of it, Johnson used that incident to request a congressional resolution authorizing him to, quote, take all necessary measures to protect American troops and prevent further aggression in North Vietnam. Note that Congress did not declare war. And in fact, the United States never declared war in Vietnam. But certainly they were at war. Over the next several years, the American presence in Vietnam ballooned from Kennedy's 16,000 advisors to 50,000 new ground troops in early 1965 to over half a million troops by 1968. Also in 1965, the US Air Force began bombing Vietnam. Remember my discussion a few weeks ago about an American way of war reliance on air power and strategic bombing. By 1973, the United States had dropped four and a half million tons of bombs on Vietnam, which is more than both sides used in World War II, all in this one tiny country. But even though Johnson took these fateful steps, he never declared war. He never formally placed the country on a war footing because he did not want to have a drawn out political debate about Vietnam. And he did not want to sacrifice his ambitious domestic agenda. A very telling quote from Johnson, he said, I knew from the start, if I left the great society, the woman I really loved in order to fight that bitch of a war in Vietnam, notice how he personifies things in gendered terms. Then he said, I would lose everything at home, my hopes, my dreams. And so Johnson misled both Congress and the American people about the steps he was taking. He insisted that this was a minor conflict, even as it grew and grew. I also think Johnson bears special responsibility because unlike, say, Eisenhower or Kennedy, Johnson knew that the United States was fighting a losing battle in Vietnam. As early as 1965, top advisors were saying privately that they did not think the U.S. could win. 1965, the war would go on for almost 10 more years. We cannot win, said the Undersecretary of State in 1965. The prospects in Vietnam are grim, said the National Security Advisor in 1965. And Johnson agreed with them, but he felt that pulling out of Vietnam would be an unacceptable blow to American prestige, or perhaps to Lyndon Johnson's prestige. Johnson convinced himself that if he gave up Vietnam, it would destroy his presidency, it would destroy the great society, it would destroy all of his noble ambitions. But the thing is, staying in Vietnam did destroy his presidency, it did destroy the great society and all his noble ambitions. And it played a big part in shattering the liberal consensus of the 1960s, ending the heyday of Cold War liberalism the political consensus I've been talking about today. The Cold War liberals did put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. In July 1969, the Apollo 11 lunar module landed on the lunar surface, and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became the first two human beings to set foot on the moon. And this really does seem to me like a kind of zenith of Cold War liberalism and of this belief that America can do just about anything. 
John F. Kennedy did not live to see this, of course. And by 1969, Lyndon Johnson had resigned in disgrace. The country that put those astronauts there, the planet that put those astronauts there in 1969 was a strikingly different place than the one where Kennedy had made that promise back in 1962. But we will talk about that next week. Thanks very much for watching. In other words, 